Hello again, everyone, and thanks for listening to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, your host. As churches and pastors discern where they will land as the United Methodist Church separates, some traditional Methodists may be wondering why theologically Orthodox pastors and churches are leaving the denomination, even though they've been faithful to the doctrine and discipline of the United Methodist Church. Others are considering aligning with the new Global Methodist Church, and they have questions about what that will look like, how it might be different from the current UMC, how the new church will go about mission and ministry. To address some of these questions and to provide a hopeful vision for the future, two key leaders in the Wesleyan Covenant Association and Global Methodist Church have written a brand new book titled Multiplying Methodism, A Bold Witness of Wesleyan Faith at the Dawn of the Global Methodist Church. Jeff Greenway is currently pastor of Reynoldsburg United Methodist Church in Ohio, is vice chair of the Global Council of the Wesleyan Covenant Association, and is a member of the Transitional Leadership Council of the Global Methodist Church. And Bishop Mike Lowry recently retired as bishop of the Central Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church and is now Bishop Emeritus in the Global Methodist Church, where he also serves on the Transitional Leadership Council. I hope I got all those titles right. Welcome both of you to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. It's good to be here. Bishop Lowry, let's start with you. What was the genesis of this book, and why did you and Jeff not only decide to write it, but to self-publish it and have it come out in like eight weeks? That's a pretty short window for a book to go from writing to publishing. So um, I think the genesis of the book was actually a, a prompting from the Holy Spirit. Um, I was aware, Jeff and I have known each other for a good number of years, and I was aware uh, that both of us were continuing to speak to different groups about different things that we had uh, talked about or written on in a variety of settings. And one day I listened to a speech Jeff had given, my memory says, that it was uh, West Ohio WCA or some gathering like that. And I remember when, when I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, this is a brilliant speech and people need to hear that. And then I found I was also fielding questions over and over again from people about things that I'd spoken about publicly and I'd written. And just sort of in my own quiet time, I thought, you know, we just need to take these two and marry them. The work's already done the essential work. And so I picked up my phone and called Jeff and said, Hey, would you, would you like to publish a book together? And I, I, I think Jeff, I had a rough draft of what an outline might even look like based on uh, some of your speeches that I'd listened to and both some of my speeches. And in, in a number of cases, a couple of articles that have been published already, including my article in response to the council of bishops, uh, when I left the United Methodist Church. And uh, um, and what I had done was expanded that. We, we quickly together were very clear that the target audience for this was a lay leader or a board chairperson, a council chairperson in a local Methodist church or, or a serving pastor in a local Methodist church. You know, we weren't, we weren't trying to, uh, to, uh, move away from uh, what it was like on the ground, but we're trying to speak directly to pastors and lay people who were on the ground in it and often had only partial information. And when I called Jeff, uh, he can pick it up from there, I guess. Well, when he called me, Bob, he said, Jeff, I, I think we need to write a book together. And I said, Bishop, I don't have time to write a book. 
And, uh, and he said, I think we've already written this book in different talks we've given over the last several years. And I think that between the two of us, we can cobble this together in pretty short order. And it really was a movement of the Holy Spirit. It was amazing how uh, there were some backbone talks that we'd given, but there were pieces that I'd used in sermons in the past that became illustrative material. And, and we really were able to put this together and get it to an editor in about six weeks. And the editor has done a great job getting it ready to, for, to be self-published through Amazon, and we're excited about that. And uh, But it's really a, a helpful tool for Sunday school classes or church boards or lay, lay leaders or teams of pastors and congregational leaders to kind of understand why this is necessary. And the second part of the book is why we believe the Global Methodist Church is the best landing spot for United Methodists as they leave uh, the dysfunctional system we've been a part of and try to, to stake our claim in a healthier system moving forward. So one thing I I think uh, need we need to emphasize is that part of the self-publishing was a conviction that the value of this book was for the number of churches and pastors uh, trying to make decisions this fall, often going to called annual conference sessions to vote on disaffiliation. We just became convinced they had to have it quickly in their hands. And so that that's part of what drove the self-publication effort. Uh, a ministry from the two of us, uh, if you will, to the wider church. Go ahead. Actually, we did try to go to one or two other publishers who said mm. we really need a year yeah. to get this they, in the queue. Were... And, and a year from now, it's too late. Churches need to be making their decisions now because the window for the window of opportunity for leaving the United Methodist Church, I believe, will close in finality December 31st of 2023 when the book of discipline, that paragraph in the discipline expires. And I don't believe there's a will uh, for the post-separation United Methodist Church to make that possible for those who remain. I had a chance to read an advanced copy. It's a short book. It's about 150 pages. I read it in an afternoon. You can read it pretty easily. And one of, the thing, one of the things that struck me about this book first is that it starts with the question, why? So many people are concerned about how. Most of the questions we get about all of this is, how did this happen? How are we moving into this new thing? What's it going to look like? But you both start by making the case for why separation is necessary. So Jeff, in a, in a nutshell, tell us why. The, the traditional Methodists are the ones who are separating. I hear that question almost every day. Yeah, and, and uh, I hear it too. Why do we? Why are we the ones who have to leave? Why we're being faithful? Why is this? Why is this necessary? You know, I, we base that particular chapter of the book uh, off of Simon Sinek's works and start with why. And most of the people get caught up in the in the how and what questions, which are the head and the heart questions. But the why question is a question of the will. And if you can get a person's will to change, you can their head and heart will follow. And for us, the 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 the, the we're going to spend a little bit of time later. I'm assuming talking about the presenting symptom that has caused this schism in the United Methodist Church. But for us, all of that all that did was expose the underlying fissures uh, that are help are causing the church to crumble from within. And I, I think there are two big buckets of reasons of why. One is uh, we're not governable as a denomination. Uh, those who are charged with holding us accountable to our agreed upon covenant 
uh, have decided that they're not going to call upon it. There are entire pockets of the church that are, are choosing to say, we don't care what the Book of Discipline says. We're going to do what we want to do. And, and, and there's no way to hold them accountable in the process, either through the Episcopal Office of the Church or through the Judiciary Branch. And so we're really living a time of the Book of Judges where everybody is doing what's wise in their own eyes, which means that that even though the, there's nothing wrong with the present Book of Discipline in the United Methodist Church, I would rephrase some things in it, but there's really nothing wrong with the polity. It's just it's not enforceable. It's not governable. The second is the presenting symptom has exposed massive theological fissures in the church. Uh, I use this language a lot, Bob. You've heard this for years. We use the same words. We quote the same scriptures. We cite the same Wesley sermons. We pledge fidelity to the same book of discipline. But because the words we use mean different things to different people, we're talking about entirely different expressions of Christian faith. And what began as an experiment in big tent Methodism, where we could all kind of come together around theological pluralism, has really become a, 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 a dysfunctional church that is tearing itself apart at the seams because we have no agreement upon the theological core. We don't agree about the nature, role, and authority of Scripture. We don't agree about the nature, role, and divinity of Jesus. We don't agree about the nature of sin and what salvation means and what the ongoing process of sanctification is all about. Now, we use all of those words, but they mean very different things. And when you get underneath the surface of that, you recognize that what we're in is an untenable situation where there's no guarantee between one pastoral leader and another which theological stripe will end up in a pulpit and what that does to the congregations they serve. Bishop, you've been in the room where it happens, to borrow from Hamilton. Why are we separating, in your opinion? Well, I think Jeff hit the nail on the head. Um, what we're separating about is not what we call the presenting issue in the first chapter, though that's an important and serious issue. Um, and the reason we're separating is because foundational doctrinal issues uh, are understood differently. And what we believe matters. Now, ultimately, it has to do with how we live out our faith in, in ways that are concrete. Um, it has to do with an understanding that, that, that the earliest creedal affirmation, Jesus is Lord, absolutely holds sway in the terms of a, an author I like uh, by the name of Matthew Bates. He has he's written a book uh, where, where uh, faith in the New Testament is much closer to the Roman understanding of allegiance to, to, a, to a leader or master or ruler. And so I, I want to be as clear as I can. This isn't out to be mean to anyone. It is about five core doctrinal issues uh, to the, uh, to, of the Christian faith that then govern how we live out the faith. And then it has the sixth issue that Jeff has so uh, eloquently spoken to that has to do with the United Methodist Church that's become ungovernable. So, so that would, that's the start. These theological non-issue, these theological non-negotiable issues uh, really get at the very heart of the Christian faith. I think one of our chapters is even entitled Reclaiming the Heart of the Christian Faith. Let's go there for a second. We're, we're talking about the presenting issue of human sexuality, and you both argue that it's the tip of the iceberg. I, I agree with that. I think there's a lot of stuff underneath. 
we have this kind of dominant worldview in the culture. I've I've said in other places where I've spoken that we don't have even so much a, 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 a biblical authority problem as we have a worldview problem, a hermeneutical problem of how we see things through these lenses. And so the cultural lens right now, and, and I've really been influenced by Carl Truman's work on this, on expressive individualism, how, how people uh, see themselves as the center of the universe and their feelings, their desires, their, their wants, that becomes paramount. And that's not just in a progressive sense, that is across the board in our culture. And so when you look at these presenting issues of human sexuality, you, you talk about them through three lenses, the biblical theological lens, the pastoral lens, and the secular lens. Why is calibrating those lenses so important? Bishop Lowry, let's start with you. Well, I think it goes back to what we've already talked about. Fundamentally, if we base our authority on us, uh, it will ultimately crumble. And that is not that is not the path uh, to holiness of heart and life, as Mr. Wesley used to say. Um, I think ultimately that's simply not a, a sustainable path to human flourishing. And, and so it's a matter of foundational integrity for Christians, mindful that we have differences with different denominations, but it's a matter of foundational integrity to say, no, this is where we're, we're going to plant the flag and we're going to plant the flag at the point of core orthodox issues that were settled in the early Christian church and the great ecumenical councils that are contained in the articles of religion in the United Methodist church and a part of our discipline and uh, foundationally, that's crucial. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, Carl Truman's work, and I, I actually have a copy of that I'm reading. Uh, you're probably ahead of me, Bob. Uh, but I also go back to a famous book written, my memory says, back in the 80s called After Virtue. Uh, a British scholar writes, and, and he writes about the fact that at the moment, we, we have no we have no foundational uh, system of values and beliefs to even shape us going forward. So uh, to use the biblical image, I, I think the pathway for much of mainline Christianity, not just the Methodist church, but mainline Christianity is literally on shifting sand. And when the rains come and they do come, uh, and when the storm blows, and it does blow, uh, that simply will not be something one can ground one's life on. Uh, at the same time, we believe deeply in the Wesleyan way of being Christian. Um, we think that avoids a legalism on the one hand and a, and a vapid pluralism on the other. Alistair McIntyre, After Virtue, great yeah. book. Yeah. Jeff, how do you how do you respond to this with these with these lenses? Well, well, first of all, these lenses are something that I've used throughout my ministry, especially when talking about hot button issues. Um, because I'm a, a an Orthodox Wesleyan Christian, I have a very high view of Scripture, and so uh, I think that the number one job I have, as I have everything from chips to nuts standing sitting in front of me on any given weekend is to make sure that I rightly divide God's word of truth 
and I and I speak biblical theological truth to them as best I understand it. And uh, sometimes, you know, Bob, the gospel pinches, right? And it deal and it deals with the brokenness of humanity. And because I have a robust Wesleyan understanding of sin, I understand that God's love is great in the midst of our sin and wants to bring us into a different kind of life. But I'd be less than faithful if I did not lift up the indelicate truth of what the Bible has to say about various topics, including our human sexuality. From beginning to end, there's a consistent ethos, and it's rooted, our anthropology, our sociology, our sexual ethic, all of that is rooted in the first 15 chapters of Genesis, which, by the way, I don't believe were ever intended to answer the how questions of creation occurred, but rather the who we are and why we're here questions, you know, and those are the questions of our identity. And when I lift those questions of our identity up biblically and theologically, I, I need to do that faithfully. The second lens is the pastoral lens, and that's because just like you and just like Bishop Lowry when he was serving a local church or even, he was serving, even if, as he was serving an annual conference, we look at people that are put in front of us with the love of Christ, and we want to treat them pastorally. So we, we want to do that in the context of relationships. So I'm not just lifting up biblical theological truth and beating people over the head with it, but I'm trying to show them a more excellent way in the context of relationship that they can live a different kind of life. But at the same point, I'm always mindful that the secular lens is present. And I, I call it the good morning America lens. And that is, is the, that if Robin Roberts was watching me have this conversation with my people, she might assume that I don't love them. But my people would say, oh, we know that you love us. We may not agree with you, but we know that you love and care for us. And you're being faithful what the Bible has to say as you understand it. Those three lenses are always in play, but the biblical theological lens is the most important one. The pastoral lens is the most important relational one, but in the culture in which we live, the secular lens is the driver the other hours of the week. And we have to acknowledge that it's there, but help people to think differently about their, the way they're interacting with their world, as opposed to the narrative they often hear the rest of the week. Yeah, and underneath all of this, you mentioned these six places where there are there are disagreements the authority of scripture being number one the nature and role of jesus fully human and fully divine the nature and role of sin the nature and role of salvation the nature and role of sanctification and then as you mentioned earlier jeff the umc has become ungovernable that's a major platform of the book Th those those six things that are are really kind of at the crux of where we are but i'm also aware of the fact that we we have a lot of Methodist leaders who are quick to quote Wesley's sermon, Catholic Spirit, and especially that quote, though we can't think alike, may we not love alike. And I always quote Ben Witherington in this New Testament scholar at Asbury who says, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to say. So Wesley says a lot of things in Catholic Spirit beyond that. How do you address those that say Wesley wasn't interested in sound doctrine. He just wanted people to have a good heart. Why are these theological issues non-negotiables that necessitate separation? Bishop Lowry, I'm going to let you take a, a crack at that. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a run at it, and then uh, Jeff can kind of clean up. But the, my first response is actually a very simple one. When people quote that one line uh, 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 of Catholic spirit, they quote it, they quote it out of context. And, and my first response to them is simply to invite them to read the whole sermon. 
And when you read the whole sermon, something very different emerges uh, about the about the core of the faith, about our ability to articulate it. I want to go back again and again to the notion that that this expressive individualism, this this um, uh, hedonistic kind of uh, want to be our own gods, ultimately does not lead to human flourishing. You know, it, it, we are the current um, concept of mainline Christianity is that it's caught in an intellectual and pastoral cul-de-sac that simply does not lead people to all they can be. Um, some of the ways to picture this are to ask yourself a very simple question. Is is the pastoral ministry of your church one that leads to genuine life transformation, to what Mr. Wesley called holiness of heart and life? Or does it simply lead to you picking whichever political party you think you like best, Republican or Democrat? And so I, that's where I'd want to start it. I, I think there's much more to it. I'll let I'll let Jeff do some cleanup. But I, I think it, I think it comes down to some very foundational uh, issues. Is Jesus really the Lord? Is He the ruler of your life? And we think if He is, uh, then life will emerge in ways that are overwhelmingly healthier and holier um, for those involved. So let me start there, but not have the conversation end there. Yeah, I, I agree with what with what Bishop Lowry said. It's interesting to me that the two Wesley sermons I hear quoted the most right now, given where we are, is Catholic spirit and on schism. And there's proof texting that takes place out of that. But if you read the paragraph before and the paragraph after those different passages that are that are picked out it makes it very clear that what bishop lowry and i are involved in is in the very heart of the spirit of what wesley was doing in the anglican church in england as well and uh first time i ever uh, heard that catholic spirit argument it was 1996 i was at general conference in denver and I was in a legislative committee with uh, on the one end of the spectrum were people like Maxie Dunham and and others. And on the other hand, the spectrum was Phil Wagaman from uh, Wesley Seminary, taught taught ethics and theology at Wesley. And uh, and Wagaman and I were in a debate with one another when we went into a recess. And Jim Logan, who he was my mentor for my doctoral degree at Wesley, came into the room to kind of watch what was going on. He pulled me off to the side and he said, Phil's going to use Catholic spirit and he's going to quote this paragraph to you in a debate. And here, I'm going to give you a copy. He handed me a copy of that whole page with the paragraph before and the paragraph after. And sure enough, Phil stood up and he started to quote that thing from Catholic spirit. I said, it's interesting that you want to quote Wesley. Let's put it in its context. And I read, simply read the paragraph before and the paragraph after game was over. Yeah. Speculative because latitudinarianism they, is the oh, spawn yeah. of oh, hell. I mean, yeah. No, that's good. I mean, I think that's telling. And one of the ways I like to talk about it is, um, and when I went to Perkins, part of going there was to study under Albert Cook Outler and Schubert Ogden and, and some of the other people at that marvelous faculty. And uh, and I remember I took Methodist history, doctrine and polity from Albert Cook Outler, the great Methodist theologian of the 20th century. And I remember him saying, ladies and gentlemen, 
in the United Methodist Church, we do have a fence line. It's wide, but it is clear. And I think it's telling when you kind of push uh, on the subject that Jeff is lifting up, say, and quoting the, the famous Wesley sermon. And when you push on that, what happens is people will respond uh, by always changing the subject. They're never willing to say what the boundary is. And so if you say to them, do you have a boundary? Oh, yeah, yeah, I have one. And then they'll change the subject. They'll not say, here's the doctrinal boundary that makes one Christian, that that, that anchors you in the faith. I'm, I am very mindful of a, of a quote I ran into years ago, I think reading Martin Luther's table talk. Uh, and I and I just think it's descriptive of so much of what passes for theology today. And Luther was responding to similar stuff in his day, and he was saying, well, that just floats like a goose on water, just, just driven by every wind uh, and swirl of the water that comes along. And, um, and the other thing is the quote from uh, Dean Inge, which is, uh, he or she who marries the present age will be a widow or widower in the next. Well, I, I, it's a fascinating conversation because there's so much to talk about in terms of how we think about this. I call it the Inigo Montoya problem. You know, we, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means when it comes to theological things that we've talked about. And I, I found it fascinating and I really hooked onto it because you mentioned earlier Matthew Bates' work on what faith means in the New Testament. I found his book to be really fascinating. And I underlined this sentence in your book, bluntly put, the Methodist movement must reclaim the central place of allegiance to Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord over and above the standards of secular culture. Or as Bates puts it, we must stop asking others to invite Jesus into their hearts and start asking them to swear allegiance to Jesus as king. Amen. That puts things Amen. in a very different light because it's not just talking about theological ideas. It's how we put them on the ground. So what does that look like in the new Methodism? You talk about some pillars in one of the chapters. Jeff, can you outline those for our listeners? Sure. Uh, in fact, this was, uh, this was one of the chapters that Bishop Lowry wrote primarily, but uh, he talks about the fact that the new Methodism needs to be genuinely orthodox. It needs to be rooted in the historic creeds of the church. It needs to be unapologetically Christocentric and driven by the Holy Spirit. But it's got to be genuinely orthodox, high view of Scripture, uh, allegiance to G is not only Jesus as Savior, but Jesus as Lord. And the context in which I serve, one of the things I tell, especially our, our student ministers today, is I do. they will have failed our people if all we do is make good church kids. We're training people to be missionaries. We're training them to be apologists for their faith. We're training them to understand that their faith has substance so that when somebody stands up in the classroom and says that you believe in myths and fairy tales, they have something of substance to lean, to fall back on and stand upon. So genuinely orthodox. The second is it is truly Westland. One of the things that I believe we've gotten away from in the last 50 years is a full understanding of being holy Westland. Uh, one of the things we did here at Reynoldsburg the last uh, couple of summers is we've preached through uh, nine or ten of Wesley's sermons each summer. We're going to do that next summer as well. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a robust time of exploring what it really means to be a Methodist. 
very exciting thing for us to be involved in. But to be truly Wesleyan, which means we're going to teach the whole of grace, prevenient, justifying, sanctifying, glorifying grace, balancing it with truth so that we're uh, that we call people to a different kind of life. Uh, we want to be unashamedly evangelistic. You know, Wesley said we have nothing to do but save souls when he sent Coke and Asbury to America. That's the job, and one and salvation is a lifelong experience. But we want to be unapologetic, unapologetically evangelistic in leading people into saving faith in Christ. And finally, we want to be passionately missional. Uh, we want to make sure that we're bringing the gospel to where people are, just like Wesley took the gospel to the people walking out of the mines or in the city square, wherever they would be found. We want to make sure that we're bringing the gospel to where people are and be missional in its application and approach. This is not about programs. This is about a reorientation of life. This is about a reorientation of the discipline of following Jesus. It's reclaiming some of our ancient ways that we have forgotten. Bishop, what would you add to that? You wrote the uh, chapter. Well, I thought you, I thought you did a superb job of, of summarizing it. And 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 what I would want to add to it is uh, simply the the impact of what Jeff is talking about when it actually gets into the life of an individual and the life of a congregation. It truly is transformative. And it truly lifts us up to a higher level of being Christian, and I believe ultimately of being human. And so uh, what we're arguing about it is sometimes we have engaged with, with, let me deed, often good intentions, though not always, but sometimes we have engaged in what John Calvin used to call a cruel mercy, you know? Mm. We, we've so we've tried so hard to be conflict avoidant and be nice that we actually haven't given people the gospel and haven't given them the, the bread that leads to life eternal, uh, both here and hereafter. And and so I, I think uh, those elements will be will be found in new Wesleyan churches. Now, I, I want to be careful. And I think we say this in the book. Uh, I think both of us say it at different points in the book with slightly different voices. But we consciously both both say it by way of reinforcing it. This is not an attempt to just give you a, a politically conservative version of the UMC. It, it's uh. not that at all. Uh, nor is this an, an attempt just to be culturally conservative. It's a quite different. It's a quite different movement, which is to bring us back under the lordship of Jesus Christ at the point at the point of core doctrinal issues. And I, I really think one of the tests for a church will be to say, are we genuinely orthodox or are we passionately missional? Are we unapologetically evangelistic? I, you know, are we Wesleyan at our very core uh, so that we're unafraid? Just by way of one example, we're unafraid to big, bring back up. Uh, the doctrine of sanctification, which is the, the holiness of heart and life, or what I love Mr. Wesley's phrase, saved to the uttermost. Um, and so we, we want to lay that out as we think is actually a gift to the whole church, not just the Methodist branch of it, but to the wider Christian movement worldwide. So where we go from here is is the big question. I think the other big question that this book addresses, not just why separation is necessary, but why join the Global Methodist Church? So we got a lot of churches departing the UMC. They're in process. They're thinking about it. 
Some are joining with other Wesleyan denominations. Some have decided to remain independent. But you both give 10 reasons why the GMC is a great place for those who want to be part of a theologically orthodox, warm-hearted, and holiness-focused church, why they should join it. So without giving away the store, because we want people to read the book, what are those reasons? And why should churches consider the GMC? So let me let me read them real quickly. Maybe we can go through them one by one, and you can each comment on them uh, briefly. The first one is consistent faithfulness and doctrine. We've kind of talked about that, I think, already. The second one is reclaiming accountable discipleship. Jeff, I know you're you're a big advocate for this, so I'll let, have you start with that. Sure. Well, one of the things that the the secret in the sauce of the Methodist movement in the first hundred years in America was the class meeting and the band meeting, and accountable discipleship, and and really uh, uh, taking the having a transformational experience and an encounter with Jesus. One of the things that happened in the eighteen fifties when we went from the class meeting to the Sunday school is we went from a transformational small group experience to an information-based experience where we're imparting information. We, we kind of want to put back into the DNA of our movement a transformational encounter with the Holy Spirit in a community of faith that calls us to be better than we were. When you read the West, the early Wesley stuff, that was the key. It was the class meeting. It was lay-driven class meetings. The church I'm serving has launched uh, 20 or so what we call Wesley groups, which has over 300 people in them right now that are basically, uh, it's the DNA of a class meeting. And some of those class meetings are actually forming band meetings in them for deeper accountable discipleship. And it's amazing to watch how people are growing in their faith as they're watching over one another in love. They're not just concerned about being saved to begin their faith, they're interested in the growing of the growth of sanctifying grace, so they become more and more like Jesus. So the and Bob, you, you're well acquainted with the the DNA that we're trying to embed in the new church, which is a which is an accountable discipleship system, which calls us to be transformed in the likeness of Christ, and not just informed about all the details about Jesus that we might know. Yeah, I mean, I headed up that task force and. That's a hill I'm prepared to die on, you know, making that a, you, you, an essential, both, an essential part of our DNA. Uh, church planting is another major reason. Bishop Lowry, can you address that? Yeah. Um, so uh, for almost eight years, not quite, more like seven and a few additional, I served as the lead bishop uh, uh, for the task for the Path One Task Force on New Church Development. And by the way, this is sort of, I want to chase a rabbit for a quick second here, if I can. The title of the new denomination is Global Methodist Church because it's genuinely global. And in, and in terms of church planting, what we need to do is, is look at what they're doing in the Philippines and what they're doing in places in Africa and, and in places in Eastern Europe where, where they're actually deeply engaged in this in a way we once were but have forgotten. So let me, let me just sort of tag that. It really is global. It's looking and gaining the, the best wisdom for the expression for the Christian expression of faith and its growth around the world. Uh, but in terms of the new church uh, developing issue, we know that one of the most effective ways to reach non or nominal Christians with the gospel is by starting new faith communities. 
When I left Central Texas, we had over 71 new faith communities in operation in the conference. Some of those would grow to be independent churches. Some others would be uh, would be in existence for a season and then gradually fade out. I mean, it was a variety of responses, but it was a deep commitment, so much so that actually in the conference, uh, and give credit to my people on my cabinet, we actually developed a system where we gave grants for people to help start new faith communities. We think that's central to what it means to be a faithful Wesleyan Christian. Yeah. Let me just add, piggyback on that, because, Bob, you know that one of the things we've done is entered into an agreement with Exponential in which we've had two cohorts of 25 people, each cohort, uh, to become church planters. And uh, one of, and we've also entered into a partnership with Asbury Theological Seminary for church planting into the future. The goal for this is not necessarily to do parachute drops the way we have in the past, but the model is to push church planting back down into the local church level. So let me give you a practical example. I went through the cohort training. Last year, I sent my executive pastor through the cohort training because here in central Ohio, there are 220 United Methodist churches within the two districts that surround Columbus, and only 12 of those churches are going to go in the Global Methodist Church. And what's happening is there are a lot of disenfranchised United Methodists that are waking up to the fact that they're being caught in a church that is not in agreement with what they believe. And they're beginning to look around, where the, where can they go? We started the Wesley groups in hopes that about five or six of them might become house churches around the greater Columbus area that would gather together and maybe worship online with us and have their small group gathering at the same place because they're not going to drive for 30 minutes or 40 minutes every Sunday to be in worship. And then maybe once a month they come together with the whole of the church like the societies used to come together. And when I first thought about this, this is right in the DNA of the church that I serve. Our church was started 190 years ago as a class meeting. Uh, it was one of 30 preaching points for a circuit rider in this part of Ohio. And 190 years later, we're looking to start similar kind of ministry in the central Ohio area as we launch house churches. So we have I, a goal I, of having we have a goal of having 3,500 churches in the first seven years of the movement. So I so I, I want to add to that. So sort of by way of underlining part of what Jeff said, we've known for years, we knew it as a part of the Path One initiative, that parachute drop new church starts are are a are, are a dead man walking. That they're a they're a legacy from a Christendom era. And uh in Central Texas, when we dealt with new faith communities, we always had them spring out of an existing congregation. I mean, that was that was where that out out outpouring of the Holy Spirit led us uh, in terms of uh, reaching new people with the gospel. And so I think the kind of model that they've used it at Reynoldsburg is a replicable model that the whole church needs to do. And I, and I go back in it. You can call them life groups. You can call them Wesley groups. You can call them class meetings. I mean, you still have a bunch of different labels on it, but fundamentally that's what's going to happen. And, and, uh, and the the GMC conviction that that the faith planting is going to grow out of existing congregations. It's not going to be something that a hierarchy sitting someplace else goes. Oh, let's put a pin in the map over here. That for starters, that just doesn't work. We're going to share the faith in a way that is that is much more in tune with the very 
roots of Methodism as an expression of the Christian gospel. And if you go back into the early pre-Constantinian church, that's how it spread. So another marker of reasons to join the Global Methodist Church has to do with being mission-driven rather than structurally bound. And I think that also goes along with number seven, which is a lean bureaucracy. How are we going to be different? I, I was, I've had a conversation with Keith Boyette. He's coming up next on the podcast next week and talking about the fact that people have said, well, where is the Global Methodist Church office located? <laughs> and I said, it's, it's in the saddle. It's everywhere. Uh, everyone is working, you know, we, we've leveraged the technology that we now have to do that. So talk a little bit about how it's going to be different. Jeff, let's start with you. You know, Bob, I was thinking about this when I was out West uh, a couple weeks ago. It was six years ago that this movement began. <clears throat> and it's amazing what we've been able to do through the Wesleyan Covenant Association and, and now also the GMC with, with only four or five employees and all kinds of people serving in volunteer capacities and meeting on Zoom and, and meeting in, in virtual places. Um, the, the goal is to have a very lean bureaucracy without a lot of, uh, you know, we have 13 general boards and agencies in the United Methodist Church, 13 seminaries. Uh, we're not interested in, in local churches funding a bureaucracy. We're interested in local churches driving the mission moving forward and having a lean bureaucracy that will be served primarily by volunteers and commissions that will kind of like lay out the box within which we color and free local churches and congregations for entrepreneurial leadership as they move forward. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I, I, the, the annual conference, I don't believe, will be the center and the most important unit of the Global Methodist Church. The local church will, and the annual conference will serve the local church rather than the, the church existing to support the bureaucracy that's beyond it. That's one of the reasons why apportionment is going to be so low. That's one of the reasons why there's a there's such a low administrative end to this. It's because you need to have a little bit of structure to help things be in place, but we don't need to build all the infrastructure that is that, frankly, the United Methodist Church is imploding under. And, you know, I, and if I can add to that, um, there is a there is a modus operandi almost unconsciously that operates in many mainline denominations, which is what I call we're going to save the world by resolution. <laughs> you know, and the answer is that doesn't work. And so what you're going to see in the GMC is a much more pragmatic, practical emphasis in getting local churches engaged on the ground. So my wife, for instance, has been a part of a group that has gone to Latvia and worked in sharing the faith. In fact, we, to this day, routinely give to that. And if you look at healthy churches, they're often doing these things already. And, and they're effectively engaged in workarounds from an ossified bureaucratic institutional structure. And the GMC, at least at its outset, is going is to try to break out of that and empower people to be hands-on engaged in mission and evangelism. So one of the other issues that I know you both have talked about a lot and allude to in the book that you're not necessarily on the same page about completely, yeah. and that is a term-limited episcopacy. And again, all of this is subject to a convening conference. 
But talk a little bit about the nature of episcopacy in the global Methodist church versus what we see in the United Methodist church. Bishop, we'll start with you since you now sure. have lived in both worlds. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think most, for those who are listening, I pastored local churches for 30 years uh, and, and uh, pastored a church very similar to the one Jeff is at now. Uh, I mean, we have, we share a real common experience. He's been a seminary president and I haven't been that, but I've served on two different seminary boards. Um, and 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 am bishop in residence, uh, bishop emeritus in residence at United now. So uh, so my view of the episcopacy is uh, is a bit different from all, from most everybody. But where we are in very deep agreement is that we have to recapture the teaching office yeah. of the episcopacy. And that was what it was in the very beginning. And I like to remind people that the the biblical word you run into in First Timothy is overseer, and that and that it actually comes from the Roman language uh, for the person, the Roman official who supervised the collection of the garbage. <laughs> so, so I like to say, hey, just you know, lay your ego aside. We need to put the, we need to put that stuff aside. We need to reclaim the core office of teaching the Christian faith. We don't need a management episcopacy. That's going to get in the way of our growth. What we need is an episcopacy that is actually truly missional. And you you hear that talked about a, a missionary missionary bishops. You hear that talked about in the UMC, but very little action that's dedicated to it. And so let me start there. I'll tag the fact that I think uh, that that uh, the episcopacy ought to be a separate ordination uh, and a permanent office, and that I think the the response to that uh, is not a term episcopacy, um, but but rather one that has a way of has a way of quickly and soundly holding bishops accountable for the vows they've actually taken. Uh, to uphold the gospel and the doctrines and disciplines of the church. Now, that last part, I'm probably on an island by myself. Uh, as I like to kid people, uh, I right now in the GMC, I really enjoy our Council of Bishops meetings because those happen with me sitting on the back porch <laughs> holding a cup of coffee because I'm the only bishop, you know? So it's a sort of nice time looking at the birds. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. You can clean well, this up. We do, we do have some no, no. here. We want to own them, honestly. I, I don't know that we'd be having the conversation we're having about episcopacy <laughs> if... The present, if if in the present system that I'm a part of, that kind of uh, that kind of accountability was exercised, uh, but we're not in that. We've not been in that place, and so uh, you know, I don't know that uh, you know the. I don't think that the episcopacy was ever intended to be an order of super elder in the United Methodist system, but it's become that. And uh, one of the ways that we, as we, I chaired the task force on the doctrine, uh, next steps task force for the WCA, uh, when we first were were working on the first draft of the doctrine and discipline. And Bob, you were on that task force actually, and uh, we worked really hard uh, to try to not react to everything we were coming out of, but to build a system where in which we thought we could we could correct and move forward. And one way we thought we could do that is by having a term limited episcopacy. It would open up some younger people to be in the episcopacy because they might be able to serve for a season and go back to a local church. Um, as Bob has said, as you said, Bob, 
that it's all going to be decided at a convening conference. But um, I think that the I, I do believe that it's a it, it's the bishop might be on an island by himself, but he's a respectable voice in that conversation that I think people will hear. Um, and we, as we move forward, I do think that the teaching office, the episcopacy is, episcopacy is the primary role. And we've also removed all of the administrivia as far as maintaining the machinery of the institution and put that in the operational office, which Keith Boyette sits in that office for the Global Methodist Church now, which is not an Episcopal office, but it's a backroom administrative office to make sure all the trains run on time. And I think a lot of our bishops... Actually, Bob, you and I were in a meeting where we had <clears throat> some bishops from another communion show up, and they kind of walked with a limp. They had been through this. They had reclaimed the teaching office of the church, and there was a humility about them that was attractive to us. That same meeting, there were a couple of United Methodist bishops who walked in, and they walked in dressed like their middle managers, ready to save the day to try to executively lead this movement. And uh, that did not go well. That did not go well for them. You remember the meeting, don't you, Bob? Yeah, that well, didn't go well at all. Yeah. And, uh, and part of the reason was is that the, the trust deficit was so significant, even among toward bishops that we share the same theological perspective with, because they had not done much to that point. So this will be something that uh, I'm going to advocate for a term-limited episcopacy. Bishop Lowry will advocate, advocate for a separate order. And, and I think the Holy Spirit will guide us into the future we need to have. And I think it'll be very different than the episcopacy we have had. Yeah, and I, and I, I want to underline what we sort of said at the start of this, Bob. Um, we are in agreement more than we are in disagreement here. Absolutely. I mean, we're both we're both we're both adamant that we need missionary bishops, not bureaucratic institutionalists. We're both in an utter agreement that the number one function of the episcopacy ought to be the teaching office. Right. Um, so uh, I would hope I would hope people hear that. I I think it's going to be a great discussion at the convening conference and and to see how things evolve over the next couple of years as as we transition toward this. As we talked a lot about in the Next Steps Task Force, we have to always be careful about swinging the pendulum too far away from what we've what we've come from. And and one of the other places where that is also the case is with clergy deployment, which was another area that I worked on. But uh, we talk about the fact that there's going to be more congregational input on clergy selection in the Global Methodist Church, as well as an easier path to ordination. So talk a little bit about the nature of connecting pastors and churches, particularly in this time of ramp up as we are seeing new churches being planted and as new churches join the, the global Methodist church. Jeff, go ahead. I'll start with you. Thanks for all the easy softball questions, Bob. I do um, my best. Yeah, you are. Um, well, first of all, by admission, the uh, the you know the by definition consultation is outlined in the United Methodist Book of Discipline is determined by the bishop, and they determine what consultation means when it comes to consulting about the trans the transition of clergy leadership. Uh, we are after a much more robust consultative process. In fact, there's also some there, there are two different approaches to this as well as you're well aware, Bob. One is 
that there's a presiding elder that would not be a set-apart superintendent, but probably somebody who's serving a church, which would be mentoring 15 to 20 pastors or churches along the way. And that could, that presiding elder could help drive the conversation around a transition of pastoral leader. The bishop would set the appointment, but it would really be driven in that local setting. And there'd be a, an open uh candidating process for different churches that would be developed. Uh, the other, as it states in the Book of Discipline, the Transitional Book of Doctrine and Discipline, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that mirrors what we presently have in the United Methodist Church with a conviction, with, a, with the with the commitment that it's going to be an open, consultative process, and people, clergy and churches, will be able to say yes or no to people who are brought to them. Uh, there are some appointments that are being made in the Global Methodist Church right now because there are pastors under transition, and it's more a uh, a hybrid between those two extremes that's taking place, in which four, two or three candidates are are being introduced to a congregation, and both p congregation and pastors get a right to say no before it's set by the by that transitional annual conference in place, which is much more consultative than anything that I saw when I was a superintendent or that probably I've experienced here in West Ohio since I've been serving here. Bishop, you have a unique perspective on appointments and things like that and the itinerant system. What's your, what's your input on this? Uh, so it's actually uh, quite close to Jeff's on this and we'd probably have to have a long conversation to even figure out where we might differ. And I'm, I'm not sure we would much uh, for starters. If you return the Episcopacy to the teaching office, uh, which I argue and Jeff argues also that we both think is is primary, um, and, and then we don't need to manage it. And I actually think the presiding elder system is a good system to try. Um, we restructured the way we did districts in the Central Texas Conference, and one of the things I regret was uh, not taking us into a presiding elder, where we had small districts of, of five to seven um uh, maybe as many as 12 at a maximum churches with a, with a serving local pastor who is the presiding elder. Uh, I think that's right. I think the second piece of this that is absolutely uh, on target is, is that you have to have a mutual conversation in. So I've watched churches ask for pastors that would be a disaster for them. And what we need are presiding elders and to a degree bishops who, who can be in a conversation with a local church um, that is not, uh, that is not uh, an arbitrary uh, top-down uh, forced move. And uh, so I think for starters, I, re I really like this system. And it's going to take us a while to figure it out. I mean, I think we just need to own that. I want to note a couple other things that this system does, uh, as Jeff was talking about it. First of all, the very nature of the dual conversation and of a, and of a true consultative process is going to hold pastors accountable. Uh, which we desperately need. Uh, I think the guaranteed uh, appointment is, a, is again, uh, just a non-starter. Uh, for starters, neither the GMC nor the UMC are going to be able to afford it much longer. And secondly, we actually had a study done that came out a number of years ago that said a guaranteed appointment uh, produced mediocrity uh, across the clergy. It produced what we what we would call uh, as bishops and often district superintendents, the quote unquote clergy union 
where the goal would be to protect clergy rather than functionally work towards advancing the kingdom of God. So I think so I think that's the second piece you're going to find. So we're going to we're going to have to experiment. We're going to have to learn how to do this. But I think the key will be not the bishop uh, making an appointment. But rather, the key will be the conversations that a that a strong functioning group of lay leaders have with a presiding elder, and with the ability uh, with the ability to talk into a process that is much more transparent, uh, much more health, health, much healthier, and, and more open uh, uh, to uh, different kind of ideas. Uh, in a way that that ultimately will actually, I think, help the clergy function better. Um, we'll put systems in place that protect uh, and make sure that we are inclusive in the way assignments get made, but we'll do that in a much more uh, generative um, and holistic manner. So uh, on uh, on on that appointment stuff, I think Jeff and I are pretty close agreement, actually. I agree with that. Yeah, and we also talk about a more streamlined path to ordination, and that's outlined a little bit in the book. And that still, in some ways, needs to be worked out at a convening conference as well about what exactly that looks like, um, about no longer having local pastors, but having people be ordained. Do you want to just touch on that briefly, Jeff? Yeah, we're, go we're going back to the ordination system, Bob, that I think you and I probably yep. came in yep. under, which was the nesting of ordination, that there'd be an ordination, an ordination as a deacon and then ordination as an elder, not as uh, not as separate classes of clergy, but as expressions of ministry. And uh, I, I think that uh, we've moved that process up a lot earlier in the uh, in the certification process for persons to be ordained as a deacon. They could still serve a local church in that process. They'd have voice and vote and membership in the annual conference at that process. Uh, but it was really, you know, part of the driving factors we had in the Next Steps Working Group was if you're, if you're qualified to serve a church, then you ought to have clergy rights in the denomination. And we're trying to move toward that that kind of a model. Now, we have some folks that have been uh, working in our doctrine task forces that want to make sure we're doctrinally sound as we do that. I'm in agreement with that. Um, but I think that what we, you know, the average, I have an executive pastor who has been on path for 11 years, and it was just received as a probationary, probationary elder at annual conference this June. He would have been ordained six years earlier in the process in the Global Methodist Church. And uh, in fact, he'll be received as an elder to be ordained whenever we make the transition from this church into the next because of where he is in process. I think there are a lot of folks that are in that spot. One of the things I think uh, actually we're seeing uh, across the church is, so this is much more than just the GMC or the UMC, but we're seeing a, de a decline in MDiv candidates all across uh, America, and and so I think what we're going to look at is a, is a a, a gradual um, uh, evolution to a new system of education, which in some ways is going to get us back to the mentorship kind of stuff that was a part of the original Methodist movement as we trained clergy to move west. I think that I think all of that is healthy. I think all of that is very healthy. We'll make mistakes on the way. Let's let's not pretend we'll do it perfectly. But I think in the long run, it will it will be a quicker process. It will be a healthier process, and we will engage in a 
we will engage a clergy that are much more kingdom focused and, and much less institutionally into playing the career ladder. The last Great. of the 10 is global from day one. It's right there in the name. A lot of people have asked about that. Why global? Uh, talk about why that is a major selling point for the global Methodist church. Bishop. You know, the first thing is we need each other. We just need each other. And I think being global is in fact, the way the Holy spirit works. We get, we get taught in, in a wider way. And so I'm going to go from preaching to meddling here and say <laughs> that North America needs to lay down its arrogance. We, mm -hmm. we can learn we are learning an immense amount from others uh, in other countries and other continents, literally all across the world. So the first thing to say to this is we need each other, that the Holy Spirit, in fact, leads us to be collective in the way we look at it. I, I would also add, by the way, there are pragmatic reasons that have to do with our culture. We live in a world culture. Uh, and that's part of why uh, we're going to go th this way. And so I, I try to remind people, people here in Central Texas, and they think, well, it's just all the same kind of churches. And I go, nah, you know, we started a new church that was Ghanaian. You know, now try and find somebody who can speak that language you can make the appointment to. That was not easy. We, we had something like seven, we had the gospel being proclaimed in something like seven different languages. Uh, uh, every Sunday in the Central Texas Conference. And that's just a very normal middle-of-the-road conference. I, I love it still passionately. But, but you, we're seeing that. The, our world is a global world, but I think that's the way God made it. Yeah. And I think that has to do with the basic faithfulness and openness to the movement of the Spirit. And Jeff can add to it, I'm sure, in ways uh, that take it beyond that. But let's start by saying this is... This is the way God wants it, and this is the way we will stay healthier. And interesting to me that we've been committed to having people from around the world at the table from the very first gathering of the WCA. And um, I don't know if you picked up on this, Bob, but when we were together at the WCA Global or at the global gathering or the global legislative assembly in May in Indianapolis, uh, we had uh, to elect seven or eight new members of the global council. And I've been at annual conferences where it's taken 30 ballots to elect representative people, you know, and you have to have people stand up and say, well, we, we don't have a deacon yet, or we don't have a person of color yet, or we don't have a woman yet, whatever. We have filled all eight places in a totally inclusive way out of 35 or 40 different candidates. And it was, a, it was an expression of the global nature of the movement. And we did it in three ballots. And it was none of the rancor. It was kind of an amazing thing to watch. And uh, now I don't, I don't want to come off like we're never going to have challenges when it comes to comes to this. But there is an understanding that there is giftedness to be brought in a way that is refreshing to us uh, from the global nature of the global from the global church. Uh, from day one, we've had uh, we have a we have a provisional conference in Bulgaria. There are other places that we're in the process of setting up provisional conferences in other parts of the world. I want to be a little obtuse about that because there are legalities involved. Uh, we have to set up legal entities in different countries before we can announce that there's a church there. But there are a network of churches in different places in Africa. There are networks of churches in the Philippines. 
and other places in Europe that are ready to come into the Global Methodist Church as soon as the legal background work can be taken care of so they have government approval and recognition. So we're excited about that. Uh, the Global Council, uh, the TLC, has uh, has uh, about 40% of its membership or 30% of its membership is uh, is persons from outside the United States. And uh, and it's a diverse group of people who are who weigh in and have their their voices heard in, in appropriate and helpful ways. So I, it's been that way from the beginning, and I'm excited about what the future looks like I've, as we move I've forward. I've personally been so blessed by getting to know leaders from around the world as part of this process and learning from them has just been tremendous. Well, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up here, but I, I want to point out we have 10 really solid reasons for joining the Global Methodist Church. I'm sure that there are more that you all outline in the book, but there's a flip side too. And there's a quote that I underlined about this move toward the Wesleyan way in the Global Methodist Church. Here's the quote. I'm not sure which of you wrote it, but I, I underlined it three times. Quote, it will surely involve a deep cultural change within most local churches. It will not be a quick process, but rather one involving decades. The tectonic plates of domesticated Methodism will grind hard against the reborn vibrancy of a new Methodist movement. Painfully, a fair number of those individuals and churches who simply think they are choosing the conservative side in a culture war by joining the GMC will not survive the move to a renewed Methodism. Tectonic plates of domesticated Methodism. That is that, that's, that is, Bishop, that's Bishop Lowry's words. That Those is, are his words. That is gold. So what are yeah, some? Well, <laughs> go ahead, Bishop. Jeff, Jeff accuses me. I have a love of big words. Oh Jeff, man, Jeff has rightly corrected me at certain places as we wrote this that book together. Was we that's think a, of a different way to say this? Yeah, that's and, a mic drop so quote I think though. That was my statement. Yeah, I, but I want to be real clear. You know, people who join because of other motives than the Lordship of Christ, than the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, than a response to the creative love of God, there people who join for cultural reasons aren't going to like the GMC. It's not going to work for them. And it's not going to work because we're going to do our best to, and we and we understand we're sinful, so we understand we won't do this perf perfectly. It's a, we have this, uh, 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 you know, we we have this treasure in clay jars, um, but but we are we are truly after a movement of faith, which was the original Wesleyan way. Uh, that that reaches towards a holiness of heart and life that transcends one given culture. It's global, and, and that uh, moves against uh, this notion that the Christian faith can be boiled down to a set of ethical principles. It's not. It's a relationship to a Lord and Savior. You know. Um, Jeff may want to clean up my sentence. I try. You know. No, I, well, first of all, tectonic plates of institutional Methodism is classic. But um, what I would add to what Bishop Lowry has already said is uh, just kind of uh, illustrative. First of all, there are a lot of churches that would call themselves conservative or orthodox that stopped being churches a long time ago. They became holy enclaves that worshiped their building and forgot about the community around them. And to churches like that, to churches that are not willing to 
pick up the mantle of accountable discipleship. The churches that are not willing to uh, to be more missional in their approach to living the life of faith, to persons who, to churches that are not willing to to claim that Jesus is Lord and and live into the robust consequences of what that means. To the churches that think that this is just about changing the name on the front of the building, don't come with us. You can die just as quickly where you are. But if you want to be a part of a world-changing, life-altering movement of committed Christians to the Wesleyan way, we believe the Global Methodist Church is a great place to go. And uh, now, I will tell you, 17 years into leading the church that I'm leading right now, Bringing that kind of cultural change to an institutionalized church is not easy, but the fruit it bears is kingdom fruit. And uh, we're a little bit smaller than we were 17 years ago, but our scope and reach is much greater because of the kind of emphasis we've made on the Wesleyan way. So I, I want to underline, by the way, I'm in total agreement with what Jeff said there. See, and I want to underline as a part of that, that this will be a slower process. You know, Peter Drucker, one of his many famous quotes was that it was that culture eats strategy for breakfast every day of the week. So what the GMC is going to be about is deep cultural change that, in fact, I, by the way, happen to be convinced that a part of that is going to connect to how we think differently about clergy education, mentoring, mm-hmm. uh, how we how we look at and assess what seminaries do differently. Uh, I mean, most seminaries prepare people for Christendom and in at least North America, but I think in most of the rest of the world, Christendom is long since gone. Um, you know, we have to come to the term, terms with the fact that by 2050, the center of Christianity will will be somewhere in China, and and that and that there is a, a gospel revolution taking place in the southern hemisphere of our world as we speak, and that that ought to humble any Northern Europe, North American uh, kind of arrogance. Um, anyhow, I I just I, I think that I think there's something wonderful ahead. That's hope filled, but this isn't going to be a snap your fingers thing. It's it's going to be a steady submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's going to involve confession. It's going to involve holy sacraments. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. I I, I give no, one. I, I I agree with that. I I think it, one of the ways we're going to have to unlearn patterns. And uh, Bob, you and I have been at every look, every glo- legislative assembly since we started. We have some patterns of how we do things as Methodists that we need to unlearn. And uh, and I, I think, it, I, I believe it can be done. It's going to take some principled leadership. It's going to take a steady, it's going to take steady hands. It's going to, uh, one of the, the phrases I use in the, I've used this in the WCA leadership as well as GMC, is that we don't want to be just about virtue signaling about what we're against, but we really want to be laying into what we're for. And, uh, and I'm excited about that. I, I think that I, I'm, that's a movement I want to give my life to as much of my time as I have left to that kind of a movement, because I think that can be cha- that can change. It'll change my life. It'll change the church I serve's life. It'll change the community I'm in. It has potential to change the world, but it's going to take time. Yeah, we're not going to snap our fingers and everybody's going to embrace everything that we're trying to lay out here. 
We're going to have to beat swords into plowshares. We're going to have to stop fighting and start planting. And that's going to take discipline, a lot of discipline. All right. So a couple sentences to give you the last word. Bishop Lowry, anything you want to share for people who are listening, who are in the midst of thinking through these processes and talking about disaffiliation and thinking about uniting with the Global Methodist Church? So I would say to anyone who is wrestling with these kind of questions, that maybe the first uh, and most important move is that you spend time in prayer seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That ultimately this is not a decision about which institution is going to fit you best. This is about faithfulness to the God who comes to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And opening ourselves to that kind of impact uh, in deep, prayerful meditation and in genuinely listening holy conversations is the first and functional uh, aspect of life uh, in the GMC or for that matter uh, in any denominational setting. Jeff, your last word. Well, I agree with everything Bishop Lowry just said. I just want to remind the listener that the reason we wrote the book, Multiplying Methodism, which is available on Amazon on this Thursday, uh, the reason we wrote it was to help people uh, with the information needed to wrestle with those kind of questions, uh, to help understand why this is important to leave and why we believe that Global Methodist Church is the best place to land. And uh, I want you to know, uh, I, I pray every day for churches, pastors, leaders that are in the place right now where they're in the process of deciding. And, uh, and I can't wait till we're on the other side of this so we can see who's with us. Amen. We want to thank you, Bob, for uh, having us. Uh, very gracious on your part. And uh, we... Uh, I'm, uh, I think we, I think I can say it for both of us, on behalf of both of us, uh, really are uh, grateful for the ministry that you have. Appreciate that and appreciate all of you listening. The book is Multiplying Methodism, A Bold Witness of Wesleyan Faith at the Dawn of the Global Methodist Church. It's available on Amazon. This is going to uh, drop on September 8th, and so it's out Today, if you're listening to this on the day that it drops, you can find it on Amazon and wherever. Uh, well, I think that's probably the primary place to find it at this point. But we hope that you'll download a copy, share it uh, with others. You can get hard copies as well. It's a great book and a great opportunity for you to share with people about what's going on uh, with the Global Methodist Church and about reasons why it's time to move. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at WCA pod, email the podcast at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. We'll see you back here next time on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association.